Well, good morning. It's good to be with you again this Mother's Day. I'm excited. I brought a picture of the two important mothers in my life. I'll show you one here real quick. Uh, nobody needs to see this, but this is me in a diaper right there with my mother. Um, my mother loves the Lord and has uh, served Him faithfully her entire life and raised her boys. She had three sons, uh, one of which is me. She raised them uh, to know the Lord, and so did my father too. And I am just thankful for that heritage that I have in my family. The other important mother, of course, in my life is uh, my dear wife, and that's uh, my wife and Deborah on her first Mother's Day. And um, I love them very much too. So thank you, Ashley, for what you are, and that we get to carry on that tradition that you and I had in our families of a heritage of parents who know the Lord. Well, today, uh, Rhonda's done a great job preaching my sermon for me, and I'm going to preach it. I'm going to preach it again to you. She did great, so we're on theme, we're on track. Uh, has there ever been a moment in your life where you felt like you've taken a few steps forward, maybe two steps forward, and then the season happens, and all of a sudden you're three steps back? Two steps forward and three steps back, and you think we're just not progressing where we need to go. This can happen in our personal lives and our spiritual lives. It can happen in our church lives, seasons of the church where things were really good and we thought, wow, we're really making some advances. And then all of a sudden, things just fall back. And it really can lead to some discouragements in our lives and some frustrating moments where we ask ourselves, why aren't things coming together? Why aren't things coming together? In 2015, as I was serving at Golden Grove Wesleyan Church, I was hitting discouragement in my own life. Things were just seeming to fall flat. We'd take a few steps forward in the ministry of the church, and then stuff would implode, and things would fall back. We'd invest in people's lives as people were coming to, to seek to be freed from addiction and from hurt in their lives, and you'd see progress, and then all of a sudden, there'd be three steps backward, and people, we'd lose them again, and battles would be lost, and I began to get it into my mind that that's just the way it was going to be. That's just the way it was going to be. A real discouragement set into my heart. I'm just, all I'm ever going to be is just somebody who's constantly stepping backwards in life, never truly progressing forward anywhere as I seek to serve the Lord. And so I was running, training for a 5K, believe it or not. I'm about 20 pounds heavier than I was in 2015. That's what having a baby will do to you. This is my baby weight right here that I carry with me. Now, training for a 5K, and I'm out running, and as I would run, I would have this conviction in my life, and I just found it to be a time when the Lord would really speak to me. And the Lord is saying to me, wait a minute, Matthew, that is not right. That is not right. That is not true. I'm limiting what God wants to do because of the way I was seeing myself. Limiting what God wants to do because of the way I was seeing myself. I was seeing myself as small and insignificant and meaningless. But do you know what is interesting? God was not giving me those definitions. God wasn't calling me meaningless. God wasn't calling me small. God wasn't calling me insignificant. I was calling myself that. God never gives the designation or the distinction small insignificant or meaningless. I dare you to search the scripture and see if God ever sees anything, anybody, any place, any people as too small or insignificant for him to use to advance what he wants to do. There's never a time that God says, well, they're just too small. 
The only time we are small is when we limit ourselves to that. To say, I'm just too small a person, or corporately to say, we're just too small a church. Our budget is just too small to ever accomplish anything great. We just don't have enough people to ever do what the other people down the road are doing at their church. It's a small mindset. And when we think we can only have a small impact, oftentimes that's what happens. It is a small impact. But God doesn't see us that way, and God doesn't want us to see ourselves that way, I don't believe. We're going to look at a story of Zechariah. Um, if you have your pew Bibles, I tried to read out of this one last uh, last week, and his print was a little too small. I need the large print. Blue are a little larger. Uh, it's page 670 in the red pew Bible, and if you have a blue one in front of you, it's page 940. The story is out of the book of Zechariah, and I want to set the timeline for you a little bit so that you understand your Bibles. I love teaching out of the Old Testament and understanding how God is setting the stage for the story that he wants to accomplish through Jesus Christ. So we have Genesis, which is Abraham and Abraham's family and descendants, and then Exodus, Moses, and as the people come into the promised land, that's where the judges pick up. Then the people want to have a king, and so we get Saul and David and Solomon. But then some bad stuff starts to go down, and the kingdom splits into two kingdoms. That's where we were Last time we gathered together, we were in the midst of the two kingdoms, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. Well, as those kingdoms eventually just devolve into evil, the Lord sends prophets and warns them, if you guys keep doing this thing, you're going to end up in captivity, is the word I'm looking for. You're going to end up in captivity. You're going to get captured and carried away, and we're going to lose everything that we're trying to do here because you're not honoring me. And the people just continue. They're, they're led by bad kings and it's a disaster, and they are carried off into captivity. Both kingdoms are, are just messed up. Jerusalem is destroyed. The walls are torn down. The temple is demolished. There, there's just nobody there any longer. It's a bad season in the story of God's people. But as the captive nations themselves become captive nations to other nations, eventually a series of people who are in rule decide that it is okay for the Jewish people to return back to Jerusalem and to rebuild the temple. That's the story of Zechariah. And Zechariah has a buddy who's like his chief engineer who's going to help him come do this thing. The dude's name is Zerubbabel. Not a name we name our kids anymore, is it? Um, I've never met a Zerubbabel in my own life. But Zerubbabel is this guy who's going to work to rebuild. And so we're in Zechariah chapter 4. They're returning to this overwhelming job there are still enemies. There's no protection for them in Jerusalem. The walls are still torn down. Everything is really desperate still. And here they come into this season and into this thing. And the, the nations around them are make, kind of making fun of Zechariah and Zerubbabel, saying, oh, you're never going to be able to accomplish this. You really think you're going to be able to, to put all this back together? No way. You guys are too weak, too insignificant to do it. Well, Zechariah receives a prophecy from the Lord in Zechariah chapter 4, we're going to begin with verse 6. Now you have the New International Version in front of you. Up on the screen, I'm going to be using the New Living Translation. I feel like it's a, just helpful for us to understand. It kind of simplifies what the Lord is saying here a little bit. And I would love it if, like last week, if you'd read with me. Let's fill God's house with God's Word. Okay, let's read together. Then he said to me, this is what the Lord says to Zerubbabel. It is not by force nor by strength, but by my spirit, says the Lord of heaven's army. Nothing, not even a mighty mountain will stand in Zerubbabel's way. 
It will become a level plain before him. And when Zerubbabel sets the final stone of the temple in place, the people will shout, May God bless it! May God bless it! Then another message came to me from the Lord. Zerubbabel is the one who laid the foundation of this temple, and he will complete it. Then you will know that the Lord of heaven's armies has sent me. Do not despise these small beginnings. For the Lord rejoices to see the work begin, to see the plumb line in Zerubbabel's hands. Let's pray together. God, for your word, we are thankful. And as we break the bread of life, as we get into what you have to say for us, I pray that you would help us to see each other the way that you do. Give us new eyes. Give us a clear vision and a clear heart for who we are, both as individuals, but Lord, also corporately, as a church, help us to understand new things this morning. And it's in your name that I ask it. Amen. The prophecy to Zechariah is do not despise these small beginnings. Do not despise these small things. Why? Because in God's hand, when God is behind the work, there is no small thing. When we are working for the Lord, there is no small thing. Laying the first brick out of millions of bricks to go to rebuild the wall and to rebuild the temple, the task seems massive. It seems almost unaccomplishable. But does that little step even matter when the enemies are pressing in and they're saying, you'll never accomplish this? Yes, it matters. Why? Because God is the one who is seeing it accomplished. And the challenge today is to get over our small-minded thinking and to change the way that we think. Small things can have a big impact. Small things can have a massive impact. I have a picture here that I want to show you. This is Meteor Crater in Arizona. Um, I've never been there. It's outside of Flagstaff. I'd love to visit one day. But this is a spot that thousands of years ago, a big meteor came out of space and hit the Earth. It looks like the moon kind of when you look at it, doesn't it? Just this massive, massive crater. Has anybody been there before? Hey, okay, cool. So you guys know more about this than I do. Well, I find this thing incredible. The diameter, or this, I'm sorry, the circumference, so that's the space where the line around the circle, is 12,223 feet, that whole circle around there. This is a view from the top looking down on Meteor uh, Crater. Just an absolutely massive, massive thing. Here's what's interesting to me. The circumference of the rock the space rock that hit the earth that caused that impact was 502 feet. I kind of outlined it here. I turned it red. Um, I'm going to zoom in here a little bit. Okay, So that's the size of the meteor that leaves this massive crater that is 25 times larger than the meteor that hit it. 25 times larger. Now, what causes this to happen? What causes this to happen? You see, I could have a 502-foot uh, circumference rock just sitting here on the ground, and it's not going to leave that kind of crater. It's going to probably press the soil down underneath it. It's going to be quite heavy, but it's not going to leave a crater like that. What causes this to happen? It's not the rock itself. It's the force behind the rock that is propelling it into that object. Do you think the same is true for you and for me when we allow ourselves to fall into the hands of God and for God to use us? You see, a small thing, we may be a small thing on our own, 
but with the Spirit of God behind us, there is something that can happen that is so much bigger than you could ever cause on your own. There is no small thing in God's eyes, for when God is behind it, big things happen. In Matthew chapter 25, Jesus is giving this description of what heaven is going to be like. And when we all get there and there's this judgment moment where God is separating the sheep from the goats. You remember this story in Scripture? The sheep are being separated from the goats. And here's uh, what it says here in Matthew chapter 25. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me into your house. I was I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in, or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and come visit you? Look at the reaction of these people. They just don't understand. Like, these are just such little things. I gave a cup of water to somebody. I had some extra clothes and there was someone else who needed them. You know, I went to my my Jewish Goodwill and brought a box of clothes. Like, what? what are you talking about, Jesus? What's happening here? Here's what Jesus says in verse 40. The king will reply, truly I tell you, Whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did it for me. Now that is an eternal impact right there. An internal impact of a small action, a small thing that is something great that speaks to something on an eternal level. There is no small place of service. There is no person too small to serve. There is no church that is too small to make a kingdom impact. Because when we live our lives in the service of God, and we are filled with the Holy Spirit, the impact is greater than we could ever imagine. Are we serving Christ himself? When we seek to minister as a church, are we serving Christ? When we live our lives during the week, are we serving Christ? Does God ever see anyone or anything that is too small for him to use? No. The Bible is full of stories where God takes very small people and accomplishes massive things through them. Let's talk about a few of them together. Abraham and Sarah, they're in their 90s. And God has said, out of you, I'm going to create this nation. They're in their 90s. They seem like, what, God, what are you going to do? They try to accomplish it on their own. It just doesn't happen. That gets really messed up. It's a great story. We should hear about it sometime. But I'm trying to keep, keep myself contained here. I don't need to preach that. But God says, you're going to have this child. You're in your 90s, you're going to have this child. Can you imagine getting a card in the mail that says, Dear Brown's Chapel, John and Wilma Dunn are having a baby. We invite you to come to their baby shower, bring the gifts, they're going to need diapers. It's happening. Can you imagine this? And this is what God does through these two with their son Isaac. It's absolutely incredible. It's something that only God could accomplish, right? Moses. A very small-minded person on his own. He goes and is, is out, out of his home country. He committed a murder and he's just kind of in hiding. And he thinks, you know, well, I'm, my, my season of, of leadership and time there is done. And he's now 
shepherding sheep out in the wilderness. And one day he comes across this burning bush that starts talking to him, and it's God in this bush. And God says, Moses, I want to use you to lead the people out of captivity. What's Moses' response? I'm just too small. I've got too weak a voice. I just can't do it. God kind of gives him this evidence that God can do something that Moses can't even explain. He says, take your staff and throw it down on the ground, Moses. And so Moses does. And what happens to that staff? Turns into a snake. And then he says, Moses, I want you to pick up that snake by the tail. Don't ever pick up a snake by the tail. Why? Because the snake's head will whip around and bite you. But he reaches down and he does what the Lord says. And he picks up the snake by the tail. And what does the snake turn back into? The staff. And over and over again, Moses is you know, leading the people up to the Red Sea. And he takes the staff and he, God instructs him to stretch it out over the water. The staff seems small and insignificant. This isn't about the stick. What's behind the stick? What's causing this to happen? It's not the stick. It's God. They're out in the wilderness looking for, for food and water. The people are grumbling. And God tells him to go speak to this rock. And Moses disobeys and strikes the rock with the stick. And what happens? The rock starts spewing water. And people have water. Now, a little disobedience on Moses' part. But again, it's not the stick that causes this to happen. We could walk, rock, whack a rock with a stick all day. And no water would come out. But here it happens because God is behind it. There's another great story that I like of Gideon. Gideon is facing a battle with 100, against 135,000 men, this big army. And he calls everybody available into service to come fight this battle. And when he gets his army gathered, he's got 32,000 men of his own. 32,000 to go face 135,000. That's a terrible odds. That's like four people against every one of his people. He's heading out there to go to go do this thing, and God speaks to him on his way out. You got too many people, Gideon. Too many people for this battle. I need you to reduce a little bit. Go ask the people, the soldiers that you've got. Go tell them if they don't want to head into this battle, if they're too frightened, they can head home. Twenty-two thousand of his men turn around and head back home. Now Gideon has an army of ten thousand against a group of one hundred and thirty-five. They head a little further down, headed towards this battle, trusting, I guess God's going to have to do something mighty here because it seems like the odds are really against us. You're right, Gideon, they are. And you know what? Their army's still too big. We've got to reduce it some more. Head down to the stream, get them some water, have them drink. And so the soldiers head down there, and some of them get down on their hands and knees and stick their face in the water and start slurping up the water. Others are a little bit more civilized. They take their hands and cup the water and bring it up to their mouths and drink that way. And God says, only the people who have cupped the water, only take those guys, everybody else, send them home. 300 people are left. 300 against an army of 135,000. They make their way to the encampment of their enemies. And God instructs them to circle the encampment on the hills around it. They take clay pots and their trumpets and they have fire and they start blowing the trumpets and banging the pots around. And the people, the 135,000, are so terrified that they start fighting one another. They don't even have to go into battle. 300 people beat 135. Why? Because it was God who went with them. David 
David is chosen as a king, which is a fascinating story. The prophet Samuel comes up to the, to the home of Jesse, and here are all of Jesse's sons. And there's like the oldest son who's the tallest son. And they just kind of get shorter and shorter as they go along and less and less impressive. And he's going through and he says, oh, surely this is the next king. And the Lord says, no, it's not that one. Go to the next one. And so, well, Lord, will bless this one as the next king. No. And he works his way all the way through. And God says, nope, the next king's not here, but it's one of Jesse's sons. And Samuel says, Jesse, do you have any more kids? Well, yeah, I have my son David, but he's pretty insignificant. He's just out in the field watching the sheep. Surely God doesn't want him. Well, call for him anyways. And so David comes in and Samuel sees him and God speaks to Samuel and he says, this is my guy. This is my guy. Anoint him as the next king. There's little David. God uses David again in this battle where the men are terrified to go in against a Goliath, against a giant. Their hearts are frozen in fear. But here comes David and he's like, we've got to do something. This guy is an abomination to God. If you won't, let me try to do my best David voice. If you won't fight him, I will. And they suit him up with the armor. With the king's armor, but it's just too bulky and heavy. And David's like, ah, this isn't right. I'll go get my... And so he goes down to the stream, gets five smooth stones, puts them in a slingshot, goes out and faces a giant throwing a rock at him. Now, David, I'm certain, being a shepherd, was a great marksman with the slingshot. He used it often. But what do you think caused that rock to sink into the skull of that giant? Was it just David? No. I think there was something behind it. I think it was God that was behind it. There's a story further on after uh, there's this prophet named Elijah that God is using. Elijah is another great story out of the Old uh, Testament. And God instructs Elijah to go to this city called Zarephath. It's the not people of God, not people who, who know the Lord, not people who worship the Lord. These are pagan people. And Elijah wanders there and God instructs him, go sit down by the well and you're going to see this lady come up to the well Ask her for a loaf of bread. And so this lady comes to the well, and uh, Elijah says, Hey, could I uh, get you to run, uh, get me a cup of water? And, you know, if you don't mind, when you head back home, could you, could you bring me some bread, too? And the lady says, Aren't you, Are you crazy? Uh, it's a famine, and I'm a widow. It's me and my son. Now, if you understand the dynamics of the patriarchal relationships there in the Old Testament, this is complete and utter desperation for this woman. She has nothing. And she says, at home, I've got enough I've got enough flour and enough oil to bake one last loaf of bread for me and my son to eat, and then we're going to die. In fact, I'm out here collecting these sticks to do the fire to cook that loaf of bread, and that's it. And when that's done, it's done. Now, this is a lady who doesn't know the Lord. But Elijah says to her, don't be afraid. Bake that bread for me. Then use what God provides to make more for yourself. Can you imagine the giant step of faith that that is for this woman? Use that last bit of flour and oil for me? Are you crazy, Elijah? Are you crazy? But something stirs in her and she takes that little bit of flour and that little bit of oil And she starts to make bread and the flour just keeps pouring. And the oil just keeps coming. And for years, 
God provides for this widow, her son, and for Elijah out of this seemingly nothing that she has left. There's the story in your New Testaments of a 13-year-old girl named Mary. From a little, God, God it just calls her out of nowhere. He brings this angel to her and he says, Mary, I've chosen you. Good news of great joy. You're going to have a kid. You're going to have a kid and he's not gonna, his dad's going to be God. And Mary's question is, how can this be? God's going to accomplish it. Mary, are you ready to go? And somehow Mary, this nobody, this, this little teenage girl, gives herself to the Lord. And God uses her. And here's Jesus. As Jesus has grown up, He and His disciples are sitting outside the synagogue and this widow comes to church. Now back in that day, they didn't do what we did here and forget to do their offerings in the middle of the service. What you would do is your offering would be set up in a box as you came in. The people would come into church and they'd put their offerings in. And one after another, the big rich people, the leaders of town would come in with, you know, they didn't do a check because nobody would see what was on the check. They'd go to the ATM and they'd get the $100 bills and they'd come in and just, you know, instead of just like folding them up and placing them in one at a time, you know, just so that everybody is seeing how much money you're putting in the offering box. And here comes this little widow lady with two pennies in her pocket. Literally, this is what she had. Two pennies in her pocket. She walks in and she places these two pennies in the offering box there at the entryway. And Jesus turns to his disciples and he says, Hey, did you see that? Did you see that? She just gave more than anyone else. She just gave more. Her offering was greater than all of these people who have come in dropping their $100 bills into the offering box. She is a person of great faith. There's a little boy who's out listening to Jesus as Jesus is teaching. And they've been out there for hours and the people are starting to get hungry and the disciples are saying, there's no grocery store nearby. You know, Marsh has gone out of business. We don't know what we're going to do, what is going to happen. And Jesus says, don't worry about it. We've got this covered. And this little boy brings his loaves and fishes to Jesus. And Jesus takes them and He blesses them and He starts to break them. And thousands of people are fed with these fish and loaves that were enough for a lunch for one little boy. To the point where there are baskets and baskets and baskets left over. There are no small things in God's eyes. There's nothing small in God's eyes. Let's not limit ourselves. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul writes this. Let's look at it together. And in fact, if you would, read it with me. You see, we don't go around preaching about ourselves. We preach that Jesus Christ is Lord. And we ourselves are your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let there be light in the darkness has made this light shine in our hearts so we could know the glory of God that is seen in the face of Jesus Christ. We now have this light shining in our hearts but we ourselves are like fragile clay jars containing this great treasure. This makes it clear that our great power is from God, not from ourselves. We look and we see our clay jars. And we say, what good is this clay jar? It's chipped. It's broken. It's easily broken. It's not fancy at all. It's not painted. There's no jewels encrusted in it. There's absolutely nothing special about this clay jar that I am. But God looks at the clay jar and he says, I'm going to put some treasure in there. 
I'm going to put some of Jesus in there. I'm going to place that in that vessel, and that vessel is not a limiting factor to me. We're not preaching about ourselves. It's not about you. It's about what we're talking about, and that's Jesus Christ. There are no small things. Now, some of you are panicking because it is 1128, and you've thought, I haven't filled in a single thing in my note sheet yet. Are you with me this morning? Let's press on. Pull out your note sheets. If there is no small thing, that means a few things for us. If there is no small thing, then it means, first of all, there is hope for all of us. God can use you. I don't know your story. I don't know your history. I don't know how bad you think you are or how good you think you are. But when God looks at you, He sees a dear son or daughter that he wants to invest into to use for his sake. If God can call the scrawniest son of Jesse and make him a great King David, then God can use you. If God can use cowards like Gideon and broken people like Moses, then God can use you. If God can take a 16-year-old farm boy from North Carolina, one who had done nothing to distinguish himself and make a Billy Graham out of him, then God could use you. There is no small thing. There is hope for all of us. Second, if there is no small thing, then it means there is no hiding place for any of us. None of you can hide. None of you are excused from this. You don't have an excuse for not giving your life and your gifts or your talents or whatever to God. You can't hide behind the excuse and say, well, I'm a nobody. I don't have anything God could want. I can't sing. I can't preach. I can't go as a missionary. I'm just too old to serve. I don't have enough to give. No, no excuses. God can use you. God can do anything He wants to out of you. To bear this out in Scripture, God chose an 80-year-old shepherd and made him into Moses. He picked out a timid, timid teenager. We didn't talk about this guy, but He made him into Jeremiah, a great prophet. The third, if there is no small thing, then we have a great reason to share our faith. If nothing is small in the hands of God, then you have a great reason to share your faith. The next world changer might be the dirty little kid in the trailer park that you could go pick up and bring to church. You can't look at a child and see his future. You can't, but God can. Let me tell you a story about a guy named Bill. Bill lived in upstate New York. He was seven years old and his mother died. He and his oldest sister lived at home and their father became an abusive alcoholic. He remained a single father the rest of his life and remained an alcoholic till the day he died. But there was a lady in the community, her name was Betty Reed, and she made it a point to pick up Bill and his older sister and to bring them to church. Now you know these kids. You've seen them in church before, the ones without any structure at home the ones without any parenting at home, the ones who come to church without parents. You, I guess the polite way to say it was that Bill was a little outgoing as a young person. He could be a little much to handle. But regardless of this, Betty faithfully brought him and his sister to church and God got a hold of Bill's heart and he called Bill into ministry service. And Bill went to further his education. He graduated from college. He started serving the Lord in the local church. He had three boys. And I'm one of those boys. I'm one of those boys. There is great reason to share your faith. Because nothing is small in God's eyes. Any of you can go home today and cut open an apple, 
dig out the seeds and count them. You might have eight seeds, whatever it is. But you know what's incredible about God? God can look at a seed and count the apples. God can look at that one seed and know the potential for bearing fruit that it has. There is great reason to share your faith. Stop telling God why it's not a good idea for you to talk with your neighbor or that friend or that coworker. Stop telling God that you don't have enough resources, that you're just not making a difference because God knows the outcome. You don't, so share your faith. If there is no small thing, then we have all the encouragement we'll ever need to persevere with the small things, to not get discouraged, when we can look and say, ah, things aren't like they used to be, or things are more difficult now than they once were. God knows what He is about, and He loves to do surprising things and pluck a nobody from obscurity and elevate him or her to effectiveness in God's kingdom. It's easy to get discouraged, especially when you can look back. Especially when you look back at points in history, even as a church, you might be saying, man, I wish that things could be like that again. And maybe you've lost all hope that they ever will be. Brown's Chapel, we are not a small church. We are Christ's church. And you know what the Bible says about Christ's church? First it says, where two or three are gathered in my name. Amen. Second it says, that when Christ looks at his church who is seeking to serve him, Christ sees his beautiful bride. We sang about that today. Men, those of you who are married here in the room, remember your wedding day? If you had it in a church or in a room like this, you know, uh, it wasn't a shotgun wedding. Let's put it that way. If it wasn't a shotgun wedding, then I'm sure you remember standing at the front of the church. You may have had groomsmen over here. There may have been a few bridesmaids over there and a, a pastor over here. But you're standing here at the, at, the, at the front of the church and your eyes are focused at the back of the church. And what are they watching? The doors back there. And you see the doors open and you see your bride dressed radiantly walk through those doors. What did your heart say? Right? I hope it said that. I hope it still says that when you see your lovely bride. Your voice may have said it a little bit too. Because you're overwhelmed by what is by what is there in Christ when He sees His church seeking to serve Him with a heart empowered by the Holy Spirit. Christ sees Brown's Chapel and Christ goes, because there's so much potential there. There's so much beauty there. There's so much joy there. There is no reason to be discouraged. You have all the encouragement you need if you remember that there is no small thing in the hands of God. Finally, if there is no small thing, then we have a crisis of faith. We have a crisis of faith. Jesus is saying, do you believe that what Matthew is saying today is true? Because if you do, then you have some real actions that you need to put into place. When Gabriel told the teenager Mary about God's plans for her, the angel had to strengthen Mary's faith a little bit. Mary's question was, how can this be? The angel said, "For God, with God, nothing is impossible. And we need that reminder from time to time. With God, nothing is impossible. With God, that family member that you've been praying for that doesn't know the Lord, with God, nothing is impossible. With, with the ministry of the local church, nothing is impossible. 
If you're trying to decide to do something God has placed in front of you, it may be tough. It may seem unsurmountable. Should you obey the Lord no matter what the cost or the inconvenience? Should you try out your litany of excuses with the Lord, remembering that He's heard them all and is not impressed by a single one of them? Should you give your small offering even though you know it's only a small drop in the bucket towards the actual goal? Should you go next door and share the Word of God with your neighbor even though this neighbor has shown no interest whatsoever over the past years going to church with you? These are decisions that you're going to have to make. You're going to have a crisis of faith. Do you really believe? I've got good news for you today. First good news is I'm skipping over the last point in your bulletin. So this uh, will end there. Second bit of good news. You can ask me about what it is out in the entryway. Second bit of good news is found in Mark chapter 9. Grab your Bibles. We're going to use the New International Version this time. This is on page 714 in your red Bibles. It's on page 1000. That's easy to remember. In your blue Bibles. Page 714 in your red Bibles and page 1000 in the others. We're looking at Mark chapter 9. In Mark chapter 9, there's a story about a man who has been seeking a healing for his son. His son is possessed by a demon. His son continues to throw himself into a fire screaming, foaming at the mouth, a wild animal. And he's gone to Jesus' disciples and they have tried, but they can't cast out this demon. And he brings his son to Jesus and he says to Jesus, if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus' response to the Father is, if you can, all things are possible for the one who believes. Now here's what I want to get to that I think is so important because I think that you, like me, can identify with this Father. When I first caught this, when this first exploded into my mind, I thought, this is my guy. This, is, this dad is my guy in Scripture. Because look at what he says in Mark chapter 9, verse 24. You ready? Read it with me. Immediately, the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. That is a small amount of faith. But it's just what God needs to accomplish something. The man is saying, yes, I believe, Jesus, that you're capable of doing these things. Yes, I believe that you can work through me. But help me because sometimes it's hard to believe. And you may feel the same way in the cycle, the life cycle of the church or your own spiritual life cycle or through the way that you've been you know, trying to minister to a family member or a friend who doesn't know the Lord. And you may be frustrated and burn out and God is promising you today, don't stop, I want to use you. And you say, it's hard to believe. Help my unbelief. Help my unbelief. There's a proverb that says that a journey of a thousand miles begins with a single step. And in that single step, there is no small things. Let's start taking steps to Jesus. And let's ask Him to equip us and empower us and enable us by His Spirit so that we'll be like that chunk of space rock in the lives of the people around us who leave an impact greater than we ever could have imagined on our own. Bow your heads with me and let's pray. God, 
We thank you for your word. And I thank you that the Bible is full of stories of men and women who who are seemingly nothing. They're, they're little nobodies from out of little nowhere, nowhere towns. They're unknown people. They're people who have weaknesses and who have failed in the past. And uh, yet here they are giving what they have to you, giving their their heart or their life or or their resources when you call for them and God you take those things and you bless them and I thank you for those stories in scripture but my heart wonders how many stories weren't recorded because somebody thought they were too small or thought they just didn't have enough to give God change our hearts in this remind us just like Paul said we're not preaching about us we're not preaching about Brown's Chapel. We're preaching about Jesus Christ. And when we do that, empowered by what you give to us, you cause great things to happen. Encourage our hearts today. Now, Lord, as we sing this song in benediction, speak to us one more time. In Jesus' name we pray.